0: Uh, Please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. Psalm 51, 10 through 19. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that the sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning to you all. We're in a sermon series on the Psalms, in particular last week and this week, Psalm 51. It's a Psalm of Confession. I thought that was so. (laughs) You get a new one. Wow. Um, I thought it was so fun that we should take two weeks, so we split it up, and Emily read the second half of the Psalm. Thank you. It is, it is an amazing psalm. It gives us a guide, language and a guide, how to move into confession, self-examination, repentance, uh, and through it. And the reason I want to take two weeks is I want to focus on this second half. The first half was really, if we think about this as a journey, was an inward journey. And it was a, it was a tough journey. If self-examination isn't tough, we've probably missed something. Talked about, it's naming our sin. It's not just naming it, but actually naming the reality by mourning it. We hold our sin in front of us long enough to realize that it does harm to us, that it does harm to others, and that it does harm to our relationship with God. So we mourn it. We name it, and we mourn it. But we don't stop there. We, we read about the cleansing, which is essential, but we don't stop at the removal of guilt and sin because repentance always involves change. That's what it means. It means turning around, walking in the different direction. And that's the journey we're going to look at today. It's going to push us out to others. And you kind of think about these two things. We've got this vertical relationship with God, but we also have horizontal. And oftentimes we stress one and not the other. Last week, we were very much looking at a vertical relationship This week, we're looking at the horizontal journey. What does repentance push us out to do? Let's put up the first slide where we started out. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Familiar words. We'll sing these words in our response song. Uh, many of you probably have know this psalm and this part of the psalm. The psalmist is asking God for a new start, a new heart, new joy, a new spirit that's yielded to God. Remember, the psalmist has been to a dark place, but like now we're starting to see some light. There's hope beginning to emerge. But I want you to notice, this is really critical, who is it that's doing the renewing? It's God. The psalmist is completely passive. If you look back at the verbs, God is doing something to the psalmist. And remember the story we talked about that kind of lurks behind this psalm is the story of King David, his, uh, his uh, uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then leading to the untimely death of Uriah. Right? Behind this psalm is a guy who has blown up his life who has done incredible damage, right? We're not going to minimize that. We didn't minimize that last week. But one of the unexpected gifts of publicly blowing up your life is that other stuff gets blown up too, like your pride, like your self-righteousness, like your ego. I mean, the psalmist here, he's blown up his life, and he is very humbled. Everything has been stripped back. He feels powerless, which is a great place to be. Why? Why is powerlessness such a good place to be? Because now God can work on him. I mean, think about one of the most well-known addiction programs, the 12-step model that's used by AA. Think about what the, if you know it, what is the first step? Admit you are powerless over your addiction. That's the first step. The first step is not, I commit to try harder next time. The first step is always in the mission of powerlessness. It's not, I can't do this alone. It's, I am powerless, and I am in need of a power outside of myself. Right, how often do you, do I, do we do something, sin? I'm, man, I'm never doing that again. 12 hours later, 24 hours later, we're doing the same thing. Am I the only one? I, am I the only one that's done that? Surely not. Thank you. We're, it feels like we're trapped in sin. And, I, and I, I've talked about this before, but one of the things we need to realize is sin is something we do. That's true, absolutely. But sin, according to the Bible, and especially Paul fleshes this out in Romans, is doing something to us. Sin is that power. It wants to rule us. And what we do is we find ourselves stuck in these patterns of sin, feeling powerless in the face of this foe. And here's the deal, the more, again, we're on a journey of self-examination, the more you allow God to examine yourself, (laughs) you're going to find that sin is lurking everywhere in your life. Let me give you a few examples, right? So so David's sin is dramatic, right? Committed adultery, had Uriah killed. Let's talk about some less dramatic areas. How about somebody uh, tells you something bad has happened to them, and your heart celebrates? You don't say that, of course. On the outside, you, you feign sorrow, and you, maybe you'll say it, I am so sorry. But inside, something bubbling up in you actually is taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Here's another one. You do something kind and generous and sacrificial for someone, and they don't acknowledge it. And before you know it, you are angry that you even did that. What is being being revealed? This was never about them. This was always about us. One more. You're a parent. Of course, you want what's best for your child, so you pour yourself into that child, only to realize that this desire for your child to succeed is deeply rooted in your own needs and insecurities. I'm trying to give you some examples to say, even some things that look good on the outside, if you start peeling back the layers, you will see sin. An honest examination by us of God will reveal that our, many of our emotions and our thoughts are actually warped. They're actually, as theologians talk about, they're, we're curved in on ourselves. We do things we don't want to do. We feel powerless to do anything about it. Like when something bubbles up out of your heart, like go back to that example of someone tells you a misfortune and gladness rises from your heart. You can't just be like, hey, stuff that gladness back down. I don't want to feel that way. I mean, you could try that, but that's not going to work. You feel powerless. You need help. You need somebody outside of yourself to renew your spirit. We need God's grace. That's what we just sang about. What is grace? One of my favorite definitions for grace is God doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. If you listen to those words on, on that song, it wasn't, who's, who was it about, God or us? It was about God doing things for us. That is grace. God doing for things that we cannot do for ourselves. Um, oftentimes we think about salvation as grace, absolutely, right? Salvation is not a self-help project. Salvation is something outside of yourself that comes to you. But it's not a one-time event, right? God doesn't just save us. God is saving us right now. He's healing us, and he's going to fully heal us one day, meaning God is restoring, he's healing us. In these secret places, which we talked about last week, there are these hidden secret places in each of our hearts. And what we can do is make that available to God to work on us. And that's what the psalmist is so beautifully modeling. He's blown up his life. He realizes it. He needs a new start, a new heart, a new spirit. He cannot do it himself. What he can offer, and he he says this, you can put up that, well, actually, I don't think it's the next slide. Hold on to that. Here's what he can offer God. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The psalmist has come with a contrite, broken heart. He says, you're not going to despise that. I don't have much to offer you right now, God. I can offer you a contrite spirit. I can offer you a broken heart. Right? You come to God with the opposite. You come to God with a proud spirit, a heart that thinks there's nothing wrong with you, you shut yourself off from the transforming power of God. But you show up to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God can do amazing things. And that's exactly what we're going to see now going forward. You can put up the next slide. It's easy to just blow past this line, but this is a great line. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. The psalmist has blown up his life. He deserves to die. He's got blood on his hands. In desperation, the psalmist throws himself at the mercy of God, confesses his sin, trusting that forgiveness is possible because of the unfailing love and compassion of God, believing that God not just can cleanse him, but that God can make him a new person. And now he says to God, if you do that for me, if you put my life back together like I know you can, like I know you can heal me, I can then turn sinners back to you. Do you see the turn we're making here? This now, now we're moving outside of just the vertical relationship with God. He's saying, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to turn sinners back to you. We talked about last year, I tried to stress to you that confession is not just firing up a prayer to God, hoping that that will just blanket cover everything we've ever done, right, and just move on. We just want to get past it repentance isn't just, in other words, a me and God thing. Right? I got my pardon from God. I'm good. I'm just going to keep going. No, repentance moves us towards God, absolutely. But true repentance will always move us towards others. And that's what the psalmist is saying. This isn't about me. It's about other people. Right? You heal me, and I'm going to be able to turn people back to you. I talked a little bit about one of the reasons why we don't, this journey of confession and self-examination is so hard, is I think we think that if we do this, we're going to get crushed by God. We're going to get shamed by God. That's why I said you have to lean into that unfailing love of God, that compassion of God. Or another reason is we just don't think we need it. I talked about that. But, but another reason I think we don't confess is that we don't want other people to know about it. We love to keep up appearances. We love to show up on Sunday morning with the veneer that everything we got everything together. We all fall in. Seems it like, seems like the longer you've been in church, the more susceptible you are to this. When I'm around people that didn't grow up in church, they don't seem to have any problem talking honestly about their sin. You know who has trouble talking honestly about their sin? We do. We do. We struggle with it. And the psalmist is saying, "Why, boy, you're missing out on a gift if you do that. See, if you don't talk about your sin, not only does it harm you and your relationship with God, but it harms other people. Having sin revealed is not fun. Blowing up your life is not fun. Self-examination is not fun. Allowing God to press into the secret places of your life is not fun. Realizing that even the good things I think I'm doing, I'm often doing for the wrong reasons, is not fun. Naming our sin for what it is is not fun. It's a painful journey, and it takes courage. I want to just name that. It takes courage. But here's the deal. If you've got the courage to take that journey, you can emerge from that abyss with a gift. You can help others. Like, that's what the psalm is saying. I know I don't deserve to be forgiven. That's why I'm banking on your mercy. But if you forgive me, which I'm confident you will, I can turn sinners back to you. Why? Because he knows the path. Who knows that path better than the psalmist? Who else is better qualified than the psalmist to lead people back to God? One of the really refreshing things if you look back at the history of church or just look around at people you've known in your journey of faith is you will see example after example of people who blow up their lives and emerge with incredible gifts. Let me tell you about three persons, three people. Augustine, lived in the 4th and 5th century, bishop of North Africa one of the most influential theologians in church history. Augustine's life early on was, to put it mildly, a mess. At 17, he begins this relationship with a woman. His mom's like, don't sleep with her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He has a son. Many years later, Augustine goes to Milan where his mother follows. His mother's always involved in lots of ways. And she wants to arrange a respectable marriage for Augustine. He agrees but he's really heartbroken. You know why he's heartbroken? Because he's got to let go of his other concubine <laughs> to, to, to then be engaged to what was probably a 10 or 11-year-old. Okay, he has to wait, which I think would have been more normal then, but he has to wait a couple years before she is of the age she can marry. And Augustine's like, I can't wait that long. So he gets another concubine. This is when, if you, you've probably heard this, this is when he utters his famous prayer, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. <laughs> That's St. Augustine. That's the guy who converts to Christianity and becomes one of the most influential people in church history. You know what Augustine's, like if you, so his probably most famous work is the confessions. You know what he's really good at talking about? Sin. Augustine's really good at talking about sin. You know why? He's got some firsthand experience. Not a fan of Augustine? How about Chuck Colson? You Chuck Colson fans out there? We'll go, we'll go Augustine to Colson. It's not a typical move, but I'm going to do it. Colson, he was special counsel to President Nixon, and he was once described as the evil genius of an evil administration. My favorite Chuck Colson story was that he once proposed firebombing the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. as a way of retrieving documents Nixon wanted that were housed there. So Colson comes up with this idea. We're gonna firebomb the Brookings institution. The firefighters are all gonna move in, and we're gonna now, while they're doing that, we're gonna grab the documents and get out of there. Like you can't, you can't make this stuff up. And that's not even what he's most famous for. He's most famous for, of course, his role in the Watergate scandal, which he ends up getting indicted for and uh, covering up the Watergate burglaries. So Colson, he pleads guilty for obstruction of justice, and he ends up serving seven months in a federal prison in Alabama. But as he's waiting, he's given a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and after he reads this, he has a conversion experience which radically transforms his life. When he's in prison, he becomes aware firsthand of the injustices of the prison system, of the shortcomings of rehabilitation, and he's convinced that God is calling him to develop a ministry to prisoners with an emphasis on reforming what he called the lock them up and leave them warehouse approach to criminal justice. He founds Prison Fellowship Ministry, Prison Fellowship, which is the largest uh, Christian nonprofit for prisoners, former prisoners and their families, and advocates for justice reform. One more person Gustin, Coulson Peter, My arrogant Peter. Tells Jesus, everyone else abandons you. I'm never going to abandon you. What happens? He abandons Jesus. One of my favorite scenes in all the Gospels, the Gospel of John, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's he's there. Peter, Peter jumps in the water, swims over the shore, and there's Jesus, and Peter is wrecked, right? Talk about a contrite heart. Peter at this point is wrecked and has a contrite heart. And Jesus says to him, Peter, all right, it's time to leave my church. Time to feed my sheep. After your just incredible display of and disloyalty and cowardice, you are uniquely qualified to lead my church. Do you realize how backwards that is? Just go back to Peter's story and be like, that's the guy that's going to lead the church forward. The guy that denied Jesus, the guy that abandoned Jesus, that's the next leader. I'll speak clear. Gustin, Coulson, Peter, they did not go on to then lead perfect lives. But what I want you to see is each of these men went into the abyss and they emerged with a gift for the world. Why? Because their particular sin had put them in a unique position to then turn sinners back to God. Repentance does two things. It turns us back to God, yes, vertical, and it turns us towards other people. That is the unified goal of repentance. It's not just a thing between you and God. Like that's often I think how we think about repentance. I get right with God. And it's all good. Anybody ever met somebody who's done a lot of harmful things, has a conversion experience, great, and says something like, God's forgiven me, you need to get over it. You're like, wait a minute. There's a whole wake of like carnage behind here. I'm thankful for your conversion experience, but hold on. What is all this? I'm the collateral damage. There's a massive amount of destruction behind you repentance isn't some, it's not rubbing the genie lamp. It's not going through some ritual so that we can feel better about ourselves. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it. Look at verse 16. No more slide. This is later on in the psalm. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. If you know this language, this is the language of the prophets. In the prophet Isaiah, we read God saying this to the people. So there's of course, in the sacrificial system, there's all kinds of offerings coming up to God. But at certain points in the prophets, God's like, I've had enough of this sacrifice stuff. This is where he says. I've had enough of your burnt offerings. I don't want your blood of your bulls or your lambs or your goats. I want you to stop bringing this meaningless offering to me. And when you're praying to me, I'm not even listening. Go back and read Isaiah chapter 1. God is saying, I'm tired of this outward ritual. I want inward transformation." You're doing all this stuff. You're killing bulls. You're killing lambs. You're not changing on the inside. And that applies to us because we're not sacrificing bulls or lambs, but we have our own rituals that we often like to throw up at God and then just get on. And we can just hear God say, that's not what I want. I'm tired of that. Look at what, uh, what, what the Isaiah, if we have it, the passage says. Wash and make yourselves clean Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Right? Cleansing, not, a, not minimizing the evil deeds. Stop doing wrong, but this is the turn. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You see what God's saying? This, this Sacrificing bull stuff, that's not enough. Repentance should turn you, it should transform you on the inside and turn you out to other People, you should be seeking justice for other people. Confession isn't just about personal piety. It's about justice. It's not just about going through the motions. It's about examining ourselves so that we can then turn other sinners back to God and go out and seek justice where there's injustice. That's the path we're on right here of confession and self-examination and, and repentance. And I, do you see why? So next week, we'll celebrate Communion and we'll, we'll go through a period of confession as we always do before communion, and you'll get about one minute to confess your sins. Do you think you can do this all in one minute? I don't think you can because I don't think I can. I want to encourage you as we prepare for communion. I know some of us have bad memories of growing up and the, the bishop kind of laying heavy on this. Okay, let's put that, that aside. The intention, I think, was good. When we go to communion, we need to take time to examine ourselves. Are we right with God and are we right with our brothers and sisters? Not in a dour sense. Not in a shameful sense. Okay, so one of the things about this, again, and I mentioned this last week, we're trying to get to the joy of salvation, the wonder of God's mercy. But if you never think you need mercy, if you never think you need to be saved, you're not going to experience joy. That's why in, the, in, in Luke's gospel, he, there's the, the sinful woman who anoints Jesus, and he, she's showering him with love, and Jesus is like, this woman gets it. She loves greatly. Like, if you haven't been forgiven a much, you don't love greatly. This woman loves greatly. Recognizing our sin, examining ourselves, holding out our sin in front of us so that we can really see the harm it's done, That's hard work. We need God's unfailing love and compassion and mercy. But what happens is we actually experience God's mercy. It's different to talk about God's mercy and to experience God's mercy. We can fire up our prayer and get our conscience feels a little better so we can move on. You haven't experienced the mercy of God. Your heart hasn't been melted by the mercy of God You know that old old expression you've probably heard? Hurt people hurt other people. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. People that have been hurt often hurt other people. But there's a flip side of that. People who have experienced God's mercy are merciful to others. People who have experienced God's unfailing love are then able to love others. We are, in other words, loved into loving. We're forgiven into forgiving. We're made merciful by being shown mercy. You can't move in this direction if you haven't experienced it yourself. That's why this work of self-examination and confession is so important. We are loved into loving. We are forgiven into forgiving. You do not have to, trust me, experience the sexual exploits of Augustine, uh, the political work of Chuck Colson, the stunning betrayal of Peter to experience the mercy of God. You don't have to blow up your life. Please don't. You may have to actually. If that's what it takes to get you to turn and go in the other direction, then you need your life blown up. Most of us, that's not going to happen, but we're going to do the work of examination and we're going to find there are places that we are not right with God and we're not right with others. And so I invite you to really take some time this week as we prepare for the communion. I know, I do it too. We go through the motions. I've done it many times myself. But the psalmist is offering us a better path. He's offering us a path of true confession, of true repentance, and true joy of salvation. I encourage you, let's not do this in two minutes next Sunday. Let's take a week to do. God's not trying to shame you. God wants to heal you. He wants to create in you a pure heart, a steadfast spirit. He wants to restore the joy of your salvation. Where do you need to be reconciled with God? Where do you need to be reconciled with others? Remember, repentance brings us back to God while also bringing us back to others, it should always send us out to others and send us out to be agents of justice in the world.